Today we are taking a little aside from our study in Peter uh, because of the nature of the day. We had a celebration yesterday of Christ's birth. What we don't, and we know from our study on Sunday night that that was in the early evening hours of that day, so many years ago. And we now uh, often forget that it was not until the next day in the Hebrew mind that anyone really knew about it. And we talk about shepherds being visited by angels the night of Christ's birth, but of course, from a Hebrew time scale it was built upon Genesis, we know that that was really from sunset on the next day. And so for them, they would have learned about it on the 12th of September. And the shepherds would have been heard, would have been confronted during the night, uh, probably in the early, or early part of the night. And uh, there's an extraordinary likelihood that, that Joseph and Mary did not even spend the whole night in a stable. It would have been unheard of for uh, them to not extend some access to their home for the one that angels have declared to be the Messiah. Uh, and so, uh, but it was really in the evening hours, and that's why we wanted to persist even after sunset in our celebration, because that would have been the context of that time period when most of you were heading home, that angels would have appeared to shepherds, uh, even though it was the next day uh, in their reckoning and, and uh, would have been the 12th to them instead of the 11th. Uh, of course, they didn't have September, and they didn't have those dates, but it would have been the next day. And so it was really on the, 12th, the morning of the 12th that it would have been spoken of around and about Bethlehem about what, the, what, the, what happened, what the shepherd's testimony was during the night of who is this child and where, and, and the context of all of that going on would have occurred largely on the 12th. And so, uh, and again, this would have been during the Feast of Tabernacles. And during that time, uh, interesting, even now, the same patterns, uh, they would have had, they're living in their backyards, largely, uh, in tents. And uh, if they were able to be observant of that, we're not sure how observant they were able to be because of the nature of what Rome was doing to the people during that time with the census, uh, but certainly the observant Jews would have been seeking to do that. And we have uh, all this going on. Uh, this is a, a very active time. And in the midst of that, we have this declaration, fear not, and we have the further declaration, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. Uh, and he's not talking to the kings and the high men, but the People out there working the night shift, the, the shepherd boys, and since it was the night shift, it was probably all young men, uh, and by young, I mean like your 12 to 16-year-olds out there, maybe a little older, but they were out there, and as unto you is born this day in the city of David. It's for you that Christ came. And last night we were able to celebrate and we set up this, why we have this a lot of work, I, it was a lot of work putting up this tabernacle in the parking lot when we have a perfectly good air-conditioned building here. Why can't we just meet in this perfectly good, solid, air-conditioned building that's already existing? 
And it goes along with the whole testimony of asking this question. Why would Jesus leave a perfectly good heaven to go through all the work and effort to come and dwell among you? You see, we left this comfortable building and at least a few of us put in a lot of work to put all this up and effort and to remind us. And that's really the reminder here is that while we enjoy these comforts, uh, we recognize that there is a, a, there is an avenue by which those came to us and to honor and respect that for Israel's wandering in the wilderness where they were in tents for 40 years wandering in the wilderness and for many, many more years than that, they worshipped in a tabernacle. They worshipped in a tent. That that was their worship really until the time of Solomon. And so all those years to recognize and remember that this was the manner of their deliverance, that it necessitated all of this uh, in a tabernacle of their worship. And now to remember, while we have it easy now in our own land, in our own houses, uh, we want to once a year remember what happened at our redemption. And that's why it is very valuable for us to join in that activity to remind ourselves of our redemption, its value, and what its costliness was. Not so much to us, but to our Savior. So I invite you to turn to God's Word. We're going to begin in John chapter 1. And then we're going to turn to the book of Hebrews. But I want to start in John 1. If you want to turn there. We'll begin in verse, we'll just read verse 14. I'd like to read up to that, but I have a lot of other texts we want to get through. Um, certainly, uh, we talk about John the Baptist's birth and the, and the light, that Jesus is the light of the world coming in. Uh, we come to verse 14. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us and we beheld his glory the glory as of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth i know in your king james the new king james bibles the word is dwelt but the word literally in the greek is he tented with us that word dwelt is the word for a tabernacle a tent that he came and tented with us that on for this season he left his home and dwelt in his temporal home here on the earth with us. He dwelt with us uh, for this time that the word became flesh. And the connection of the incarnation, that is God the Son becoming flesh, is consistently communicated as him tabernacling among us. And we're going to see that played out much more later on. But this is to John the association, and, and we can't lose that connection between Jesus is the light and Jesus is the tabernacle. Uh, and in fact, even in Israel, to go, you go to Israel today, it's not just the Feast of Tabernacles, they'll also call it the Festival of Lights. Because as you go around Israel during the Feast of Tabernacles, they're not going to celebrate that for another week or so. Um, they're a couple weeks off because they think a full moon or a new moon is a new moon instead of a full moon. So we're a couple weeks ahead of them. And so in a couple weeks, they're going to be celebrating the Feast of Tabernacle one week. They'll be celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. And I know it'll be, well, a week and a half. Two and a half. No, a week and a half. So 
but they also celebrate lights, and they put up lights in their outdoor tabernacles, in their outdoor tents. And it's fascinating to see pictures, aerial pictures from Jerusalem and other communities uh, where the Israelites do this for that week. And uh, they, it is a big celebratory time. You invite people over, so you, go, you come over tonight and visit my tabernacle. We'll go down the street and visit that tabernacle, and they have parties all every night pretty much at various people's backyards. And, and it's just a week of that. And, but it's all lit up. And the light from that is extraordinarily high. So for John to communicate Jesus is the light in the previous verses, then say, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It tabernacled with us. That connection of tabernacles with lights is a strong one that is still persistent in the Jewish community. That the Feast of Tabernacles and the Festival of Lights go together there. That that is what we are, they don't understand the celebration, the connection to Jesus, but it's still inherently there in their cultural observance of the Feast of Tabernacles. So we find that here John is going to bring these two concepts together, and he's going to say, listen, the word becoming flesh, and he tabernacle with us. This word that we have anticipated, who is the light of the world, who is the creator, that he is the one who uh, made all things and, and uh, that within whom is life itself and is the light of the world. But then if we back up, we find out in verse 11 that he came to his own, his own did not receive him. And hence, they have an empty celebration in Israel because they have tabernacles that's only about remembering uh, their forefathers and not understanding the nature of the Feast of Tabernacles to the Messiah and the connection there, that he would have to come and dwell among them. And that's not anything just recent that they don't understand the connection. They never got that connection. All the way back to the time of Jesus' presence on the earth, they didn't get that connection by and large. And so his own did not receive him. Uh, and yet if we do receive him, the next verse says, we have access. We are children of God. Uh, who believe in his name, and we are born of God, uh, again, uh, out of God's goodness to us and his provision for us. And so right away, John tries to make this connection of the concept that when Jesus comes in the flesh, it was a temporal event for him to be on earth. He's not going to repeat that event until he comes permanently. And we're going to see the other reference that John makes to the idea of God tabernacling with men, and that's in the book of Revelation. We're going to get there much later this morning. Uh, but he doesn't just start his writing with that concept. He's going to end his writings with that concept. It's kind of fascinating if you go through, if you consider the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and then Revelation as a, as the, as a, Pauline, as a Johannian body of writing, that he's going to begin by talking about Christ tabernacling with us, and he's going to end by talking about us tabernacling with God, that us dwelling with God and God with us. And so we find that uh, this is an important concept to John to encourage and to teach the church, and it's an important concept for us to grasp during this time particularly. So I invite you to go to the book of Hebrews, and this is kind of a fun accidental thing, um, or maybe you want to think it's a God-appointed thing, 
Um, but in Hebrews, <laughs> the reference is to the same um, as his birth date. So what chapter and verse are you going to? Chapter 9, verse 11. Isn't that interesting? Just a little happy accident, you could say. But of all the, the places in the Bible, it's Hebrews. And Hebrew, you know, is the Jewish people. Hebrews, chapter 9, verse 11. Now, chapters and verses were added much later. They were not part of the writing. It was not written this way, so this is not inspired. Um, but it's just kind of a funny thing to just kind of look at. That on, on September 11th, 9-11, of our calendar, that we're looking at a verse in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. So let's pick up there and read a little bit. We're also going to be looking into chapter 10. So we're handling a pretty large body of information. We're not going to handle everything in between. But we want to consider this carefully. So begin with me in chapter 9, verse 11. This is about Christ came as high priest of the good things to come. And with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of bull of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats, the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. For this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. And we're going to see the necessity of the death in the testimony here listed in the balance of this chapter. But I want you to notice uh, the description of Christ's coming. He's going to come as your high priest, and Hebrews takes a lot of time to develop that. Uh, because he's under a, not under a priestly name. That is, the Messiah is not coming in the tribe of Levi. He's coming in a kingly tribe, uh, the tribe of Judah. So what is his right to the priesthood, to being the high priest? And again, the writer of Hebrews wants to take us back not to the Levitical priesthood, but to the Melchizedekian priesthood. He is a priest on the order of Melchizedek. And that's a very important principle in Hebrews that is very extensively developed, that he has no history, no beginning, no end, we had, and that, that this is the personification in our typology of Jesus Christ, that he is deity made flesh. And this fleshliness is always going to be connected to his dwelling among us. He took on flesh to be not just one of us, but to be with us. And we understand that, hopefully, when we understand what Emmanuel means. The word means what? God with us. Not God one of us. God with us is what Emmanuel means. And so when we sing about Emmanuel, when we use that term, it is God with us. That God is with us. He is domicile. He is dwelling Though temporary, because it's only a pretty short period, about 33 years or so, that he has dwelt among us, uh, and he has certainly left his home. This is not his home. Uh, this is a, a wilderness for him. <laughs> I hope you understand that it doesn't matter how pretty a place you want to find on earth, you're still in the wilderness compared to heaven. And so he is dwelling on earth temporarily, Dwelling among us, tabernacling with us while he's in the flesh. That is the purpose, is that God who will be with us. 
So Christ comes as the high priest, and that points us to something better to come. That there is a relationship with God that is going to be superior to anything man had prior to Christ's coming. That while Israel had a very intimate relationship with God, and we say, well, they had the cloud, the pillar of fire by night, the cloud by day, um, they had the prophets coming, uh, and I would just challenge you to spread out the messages of the prophets over the period of time of the prophet from Samuel all the way through uh, the period of Daniel and that period and realize that maybe it's not as frequent as you think they had access to the prophets and their messages, but certainly he had that. They had the law. We have, they have the engagement through the monarchy. We have all of this going on, and we say there are miracles in the land. There is a certain, uh, certainly God gave them plen- ample evidence of his power, of his presence, of his glory, uh, going all the way back to Abraham. And yet, Hebrews tells us, listen, that was good, but there's something better to come. And that's something better to come is what is the salvation that Jesus Christ is going to, to, to provide for you. Now, Friday evening, uh, just before sunset, uh, I took the life of a lamb so you could have a meal last night. So that evening, I took it, and, and I understood that's the whole reason I had that lamb was to consume it but it requires that shedding of blood. And as I was doing that, I tried to do it, uh, I didn't use a, a modern weapon, and so <clears throat> it was a little more disturbing, we'll put it like that, um, because you, it takes time. It takes time to do it in that manner. And as it's happening, I'm thinking, you know, our Lord suffered on the cross for a, a time. It took time. And we think, oh, you know, he died, and we say that, and, and we don't think about the prolonged nature of his death. Going all the way back to his beatings and extending all the way to his being placed on the cross, uh, being nailed there, hung there, um, and all that is going through that process of gasping for breath uh, on that cross uh, for every breath. So... Um, as I did that, I was thinking about that, um, but also because I have this message getting ready to go out today, I was like, I am so glad that I don't have to do this every day, morning and evening, every day, because that was what was required under the old covenant, that the priest, which would fall on me, the would have to sacrifice a lamb every morning and a lamb every evening, discounting every other sacrifice that is brought to the temple by the people during the day. And that is, your life is, is just taking life. Every day is shedding blood. And so when the writer of Hebrews says, the blood of, of, of bulls and goats, or the blood of goats and calves can't take away sin, the sprinkling uh, and, and while purified their flesh, then we have a sacrifice that completes it. And we no longer have to do this as an act. We no longer have to have this, this daily 
twice-a-day reminder that without the shedding of blood, there is no removal of sin. And we take the most innocent of animals, and yes, all baby animals are pretty much cute. Okay, and, and lambs are no different. And that's why pretty much no one ever wants to come with me, not even my own family, want to really be there. They'll help me with the skinning and everything involved, but not in the actual taking of the life. They just don't want to be there. Um, because we don't want to think about the fact that for me to live, to consume this, requires a death. But yet for us to have eternal life requires a death extraordinary. The death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so a passage like this becomes very real when you are involved in the process of putting food on the table much more than just going to Smith's. And, and if that's the extent of your involvement, uh, you suddenly realize the connection here. We have something so much better. These are the good things. We are the participants in the good things to come. Now you might say, well, there's, there's still more better things for us in the future. Absolutely, because we're still here. But we are in such a better position, having been on this side of the cross of Jesus Christ, to participate with greater intimacy, with higher access, which we're going to see here in a little bit in chapter 10, um, with, with full forgiveness, with, with really, you have to do a lot less work. Don't you? You don't have to think about, well, I have to get my, I have to have my sacrifice um, at least three times a year to take to Jerusalem. Uh, and none of you worried about that this past year, did you? And you thought it was hard just to put a little money in the offering box. Uh, no, you'd have to make sure you have your animals lined up throughout the year to make sure you had a lamb, a goat, calves, you had a baby coming, well, now you got to get ready for those sacrifices uh, at the purification, uh, all, at the dedication, uh, all of these things. You have to have those sacrifices ready. You don't have to do any of that. Because Jesus Christ has died once for all, for all time, for all men. In essence, you have come into a period of time where your spiritual life is, it shouldn't be, but it is, and it is easily disconnected from your daily existence. And that disconnect is a dangerous thing. And that's why we have the communion table, to remind us that our salvation, while it really doesn't cost us at all, you know, we complain if we have to get up and go to Sunday school and church, if I'm tired because I partied all night last night, um, or whatever. We have these, these, we can find excuses and, and oh, it's so hard. You have nothing, no idea how easy your Christian walk is. The demands are minuscule on us because Christ has already completed the sacrifice. Can you imagine if none of you, if each one of you had to bring an animal today to sacrifice with you? To worship? Because you would not go to the tabernacle without one. Whether it was a grain offering, a drink offering, a, a, a sin offering, 
Um, I'm pretty sure everyone needs one of those. And so you're bringing all these sacrifices to cover and to celebrate, both to their sin offerings, to remove sin, there's thank offerings, there's peace offerings. You've got all of these things. None of you thought of that. And yet we often come before God with an attitude of, aren't you lucky I showed up today? Instead of rejoicing that I get to show up today and, and look at the liberty that I have to come here essentially empty-handed. Uh, I tell people, don't ever come to church empty-handed. Um, but we should always come before the Lord with an offering of some sort, but nothing like what they used to have. So when it says that Christ came as a priest of the good things to come, we are the participators of that. We have our sins forgiven in his blood, not in the activity of shedding blood day by 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 day. And so we have this wonderful time blessing. Is there still better yet to come again? Yes. Certainly we, get, we anticipate heaven and we look forward to that. But before you complain too bitterly about the rigors of a Christian life on earth, let me remind you that your rigors are light. When Jesus Christ says, hey, my burden is what? Light, my yoke is easy. He didn't make it harder when he came for people. He made it easier. We have an easy faith, and yet we don't measure up to it. We still complain. We still find excuses not to be faithful in it. And when our faith walk is easy now compared to what it was. And so maybe next time I'll just invite you all, not for the meal, but for the preparations. So we begin to comprehend the costliness. So we can appreciate what Christ has done for us as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin, the, the slain Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Because to bleed out an animal takes time. And when it looks up at you and it's dying and you know it's dying, that's the intent, and you cause that injury that would take its life, but it's looking at you, it's like, help me, help me, help me, and you're like, I'm just, you know, I'm not gonna, I didn't walk away, I stood right there and held that animal till it was done. Till its life had left it. Um, and it was not just a minute or two. To recognize this is Christ for me, and now I don't have to do this every day. I don't have to do this for every sin. I don't have to do this anymore. Christ has fulfilled it. This is huge. And we're disconnected because we're disconnected from the activity. But for these first-generation believers, this was huge. No sacrifices. Because Christ is once for all. What a blessed state we are in. All because he chose to come and tabernacle in his flesh. And so, he's the high priest, he is the sacrifice, and he's also the place of sacrifice. And that's kind of a strange thing that he's all three. In verse 11 it says he's the high priest, the one who offers a sacrifice. He's, he is the sacrifice itself, but he is also the perfect tabernacle. That he is the representation of heaven on earth. He becomes the perfect tabernacle. To really develop this, um, let, well, let's, let's go over to verse 23, and then we're going to go into chapter 10. 
because we're going to talk about the copies versus the original and things like that. It says, therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these. That's referring to the blood. Of that without shedding blood, there's no remission. That's the end of verse 22. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. We don't often think about the concept that the things in heaven are going to be purified, set apart, sanctified by the blood of Jesus Christ. They're going to be improved. We often think, well, the, our lives, our worship is going to be improved. But is heaven improved? Yes. When Jesus Christ shed his blood, it was not just shed on earth. It was applied in heaven, and heaven itself was improved. It was set apart. It was purified by the blood of Jesus Christ. So the heavenly things of which the earthly tabernacle was a copy of you know, Moses went up there, God showed him, says, this is what's up here. I want you to make a, uh, something resembling that on earth. And so the earthly tabernacle was a copy of something that was in heaven. And so he says, listen, the heavenly ones are going to be set a, purified, set apart, sanctified. Verse 24, for Christ had not entered the holy places with hand, made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He, would, he then would have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as is appointed for men to die once, after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. So we have this concept that there is a earthly tabernacle, a heavenly tabernacle, and the mediator between those two is himself a tabernacle. That in his flesh, that he is that, that he is that temporary representation of God to men, and, but he's also, he, because of his resident of heaven that left heaven and returned to heaven and set it apart. He purified, not that there was sin or flaw in God's heaven, but that he, he set it apart. And that's why in Revelation we have the arrival of the Lamb and immediately heaven is improved by the sacrifice, the application of the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's why you have new songs being introduced. How exciting, a new song in heaven. After all these thousands of years of singing these songs, which themselves are wonderful, we're going to add an even more wonderful song. Heaven went from best to even better than the best with the application of Jesus Christ. He set heaven apart as even a better place because of his actions. And since the new songs recorded for us, uh, not just one, but multiple new songs recorded for us in Revelation. And so we find that this is all built upon this concept that Jesus Christ as the high priest, as the sacrifice, is also the tabernacle. And so he carries with him from heaven to earth the dwelling of God. And so God was with us. God dwelt. He tabernacled with us. In him was the tabernacle of God. All right? You touch him, what happens to you? What happens to you when you touch Jesus Christ in the flesh on earth? For that one gal with faith, she was healed. Just touched his garment. He was the embodiment of heaven 
on earth. That's a tabernacle. So he was the priest, the sacrifice, and the, and the tabernacle. Let's go into chapter 10. And let's, oh, I'm getting behind here a little bit. Let's go to, um, I'm going to read a long, longer scripture than I was planning. <laughs> let's, let's start in 10:11 as well. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifice can never take away sins. But this man, after he offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. And from that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering has perfected, there it is, that perfected forever those who are being sanctified. We are perfected people by a sacrifice. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I'll put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there's remission of these, there's no longer an offering for sin. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us, through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. We'll stop right there. Do you see this wonderful picture? You have the, the high priest on the order of Melchizedek giving the perfect sacrifice in his own tabernacle, that is his flesh, so that we have full access to God on an extraordinary level. And so we have the boldness to enter the Holy of Holies. And so not only is he the tabernacle, but even it describes that his very flesh is the veil. Now what is the veil of the tabernacle? The veil of the tabernacle separates the holy place from the holy of holies. That's the veil they're talking about. And we are all well familiar with the fact that at Christ's death, that veil tore in Jerusalem from top to bottom, which means it didn't happen by human action, it would have been from bottom to top. Divine action from top to bottom, that the veil tore between the holy and holies because access was given. It's no longer hidden. And so he says his own flesh, when he suffered death itself, in his flesh, this was the veil. And we have sometimes some songs and some poetry and things that talk about the other side being that there's a veil. There's a veil between us and the other side. And the way we penetrate that veil is death. That we move from this earthly life to our life in God's presence. So Paul says, you know, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. I, I don't know which one I want better. I want to be here to minister, but I can't wait to cross and be in the presence of my Savior. And that veil, if you will, is death. Well, Christ in his flesh, it says there, what verse was it, 20? 20. That he penetrated that. And they're referring to his death. His death in the flesh broke down that barrier, that hiddenness, because back then only one person was allowed to go in there one time a year. That was it. That's all the frequency by which you accessed the uh, throne room of God on earth, right? Because the, the, the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat 
Uh, and so he who dwells among the cherubs, and even in the temple period, all of it was encompassed by cherubs. Uh, and so that was the dwelling access. Now Christ in his flesh has broken that barrier. We have access to the holiest of holy places. And just consider this, because we're so used to it, we don't often understand just how precious it is. One guy out of your whole people, one day a year, goes into that room. That's how often you had access to the throne of God. So how often did you have access to it? None. One guy. <laughs> Not each person gets a turn. One guy, one day a year, gets access to that room. We have all access to that room by the death of Christ Jesus. He broke that veil. He penetrated that, but notice that it is that now his body, his flesh is limited not just to the whole tabernacle, but to one element in the tabernacle, that veil. That curtain that's set between the holy place and the holy of holies. And let's just face it, for, for us, the best we could hope for is to be out in the courtyard. That's as close as we could get. I mean, the priestly act of changing the showbread and, and filling the, the, the candelabra, the, the, the light there, the oil, and doing all that activity and making the incense on the, and all of that's involved there, altar of incense. and They had some access to the holy place on a daily basis, but again, that was a very small handful of people. You never got past the courtyard. The common people. And now through the death and the coming of Jesus Christ, by him coming and dwelling among us, by him becoming that child in Bethlehem, in a, in a manger, uh, in swaddling clothes and just torn up rags, we find in him dwelling with us the access in his flesh to destroying the veil between us and the Holy of Holies, between us in the holy place, getting us out of the courtyard into the very presence of, into the very family of God, and then into the very presence of his throne. That we have that kind of access is phenomenal. That is why we celebrate Christ coming in the flesh, as well as celebrating his death, burial, and resurrection. And so in the fall, we have this opportunity to consider Christ tabernacled with us, and then to consider the conclusion of that in the spring when he died, was buried, and rose again. And so they put this together in the context of the tabernacle is how we understand it. And so it is appropriate, and we understand the necessity and the, and the pre-science here that is there uh, in, in God's plan that you're going to celebrate this week in a tabernacle. You're going to live out in your backyard in a, in a tent. You're going to worship in a tent. You're going to do all these things because not only remembering what happened in the 40 years of wilderness, which is really because of your sin and disobedience, but really that's not the main focus. The Christological element of the Feast of Tabernacles is this is when God will come and tabernacle with you. 
He left the comforts and the wonder of heaven's glory to come and live with you here in this place. A place is not his home. What he keeps saying, I've been sent by the Father. I've come from the Father. I want to go back to the Father. I'm just here on a little camping trip. Okay, I know that might be a little sacrilegious, but essentially he comes here and he says, I'm dwelling among you. I'm here for a short time. I'm going to go back to the Father. I have a task to accomplish out here and I'm going to be in this temporal dwelling until I accomplish that task. But the task isn't for me. It's really, you know, obedience to the Father, but it's for you. So you can have access to my home, to where I come from. And so we want to communicate this. Why are we outside living in a tent when we have a perfectly good house? Why are we worshiping in a tabernacle when we have a perfectly good building? And I was very tempted to have our worship service out there today, frankly. But I know how much you guys like air conditioning. So we had it last night, just a time of eating and, and feasting there. But why do we do it? Why go through all that effort? Why, to have a vivid reminder that that effort is nothing compared to the effort of Jesus Christ to leave the wonders of heaven to dwell here on the earth in a body. Can you imagine how restrictive that was to him? Yeah, a tent isn't as expansive as your house that you build. You're always going to build a house probably bigger than your tent. I know there's that tiny home thing going on right now, but those are still elaborate. Tent is a small place, isn't it? Compared to your permanent dwelling. So the tabernacle was small compared to the temple, which was a little bit larger and more extravagant. Well, Jesus Christ left the extravagant place of heaven to come and dwell in this place temporarily for you and for me. And while I'm out here putting this together and while we're out there yesterday eating out there, well, wouldn't it be easier just to do it inside? Yes, but that's not the point. The point is we are celebrating and commemorating the fact that Jesus came and tabernacled with us. He left all the comforts. He left all the glory. He left all the benefits. He left the expansiveness. He left all of that to come here and dwell for me so that I can have access to the Holy of Holies. And I think a reminder once a year of that is very worthwhile. Just as we have a reminder whenever we partake in the Lord's table of his death. As we have a wonderful reminder once a year of celebrating, well really, once a week we have a reminder of his resurrection. That's why we celebrate on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, and not the seventh day of the week. As a weekly reminder of his resurrection, an annual reminder of his coming tabernacling with us, and a, a, a big commemoration and celebration of his resurrection in the spring. We have these events to help us focus our attention and worship upon him. And when we come to this celebration and we miss the Day of Atonement, that was really last week. We didn't really get into that last week of the Day of Atonement, of the time of just considering that. I'm still in the process of reworking my whole concept of a religious calendar. Uh, but oh, that we would have these reminders. And 
not just as a tangential, weird thing we do once in a while, but to realize this is God's design to declare to us and to help us celebrate and worship his work. These are God's designs. Go live in a tent for a week. And while you're living in that tent with all of its hardships, think of the hardships of Christ living among us, having had his whole existence in heaven up until that time. Of being a little baby waiting for his mom to feed him and change his diaper. The one who is the king of kings and lord of lords. The one who created all that he is now a part of. Think of the hardship of that. Of emptying himself, Philippians 2 says, of emptying himself of that he could serve us. You see, we have lost, and glad to do so. I'm glad that we lost the sacrifices as a mechanism of worship um, and that we don't no longer have to shed blood to do that. But we already have an easier faith and we seem to just want to make it easier and easier and easier and easier. And this seems to be the trend of our day. Um, when I was growing up, you were expected to be in church usually about three days a week because we had the Lord's Day, of course, evening and morning and evening. Uh, we usually had a prayer meeting and I grew up where we had visitation. So one week was, one day of the, one night of the week was, was for um, evangelism, one night of the week was for prayer, and one day of the week was for worship. And then we added our children's program, and now four days out of the week, I was in nights of the week, our family was involved in church. Now there are no nights of the week that your families, most churches are involved in. Maybe they might have a home Bible study during the week, um, but they all have one service. You pick which one of these, Saturday night, Sunday morning. We have four or five services. You pick one, and you... you because we just want our, we want it to cost us nothing. It already costs you nothing. Why make it even less? And so we sing the song that we sang earlier today. You know, I paid everything for you. Have you paid nothing for this? To serve me when, when we ask about serving and worshiping and, and its costliness, it costs us nothing really compared to what it used to cost people before Christ, what it cost Christ, everything. And now we have this wonderful, incredible access, and we complain if it costs us anything. It shouldn't cost me that. Yes, it should, and probably more. We have to have a different mentality. If while we are participating in these things, we are being reminded, why are we doing this? And this is so important for our children. Why are we doing this? Why are we in a tent? And I had one child ask me that yesterday. Why are we out here? That was it. One. One person asked me, why are we out here instead of in the building? Well, we're out here because Christ left heaven. And this place, last night, represented heaven. To tabernacle among men, out in the gravel, and the heat, and the flies, 
less protected, exposed, temporary. Because Christ left heaven to dwell among us for our deliverance, that we might have access to the Holy of Holies. That through his taking on flesh, he could break the veil. And now we fear not death, for we have a true sense of our place in heaven, in the very throne room of God. And so we are called, and as the writer of Hebrews calls his readers, I call you, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. As the writer of Hebrews calls his readers, I call you, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. As the author of Hebrews calls his readers, so I call you in verse 24, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. And as he called them, I call you, not forsake the assembly of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more, so much the more, as you see the day approaching. We should not be meeting less. We should be meeting more. For Christ's coming is sure. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us that sent you to this earth to leave heaven's glory and comforts that we can't really understand. We can only imagine what it is like. We look forward to experiencing what it's like. But Lord, we know the great cost it was for you to come to be conceived in a womb, in your own creation. And to become one of us, to leave all that, to suffer in this place, and to not be accepted by your own, to be cruelly treated, and killed by those you came to deliver. Lord, we know that it was not only they, but our sin that, that you died for. It was our sin that put you there. And for this, Lord, we cannot cease to give you praise. We thank you for the opportunity we have to remind ourselves that this world is not our home that we have a place in heaven prepared for us by our Savior who paid it all that we might have access to you. Lord, we thank you and cannot cease to give thanks and praise to your name. We thank you for this model by which we can be reminded vividly and our children be reminded vividly of the costliness of our faith to you. Lord, forgive us for complaining about meeting together and even for those that forsake it. We pray you might bring conviction there. Lord, help us as we see your day quickly approaching to recognize the great need that we have to be gathered in your name more often while the world tells us to not meet at all. 
We thank you for the clarity of your word. Help us to live it. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.